Hi, I'm Helen Wright, and I am a rugby coach. I believe that sport can be an excellent medium for the growth and development of human beings. But, like all things in this world, the only constant is change. I believe that sport delivery and coaching in sport has to change to adapt to the changing world around it. This podcast is about sport and coaching and change. What has changed about coaching female athletes or male athletes, athletes who identify differently than that? What has changed about coaching children or adults? What has changed? How will we change? Let's begin the discussion. Hello, everyone. Welcome to my podcast. I have a very special guest with me today. Um, My friend Jill Zonnevelt has decided to walk down memory lane with me. And uh, I don't think people know exactly how women's rugby in Canada got started and how the international scene got set up for World Cups. But there was a cabal of women that were all underground and working sort of subversively to make sure that we got the game on the field and access to an international World Cup and, uh, and, and real credibility in the sporting world. So... Jill was very, very um, crucial to that whole process. So um, in 19, uh, in 1987, I started to work for the Alberta Rugby Union. And so I was working on the inside and, you know, sort of making pathways possible. And Jill, Uh, and I'll let her tell the story, but Jill started working from the top down. And so we had it top down, bottom up, and, uh, we're able to deliver, uh, some real progress in putting the game on the field. So Jill, welcome, welcome to my podcast. (laughs) And, uh, the first thing that I'm going to ask you is first off, tell me how and when you got started playing rugby and what was it? Cause I'm going to describe Jill to you. She is an elegant fit woman. If you saw Ted Lasso, she would be Rebecca, only not quite that tall. Okay. So, so how did this woman who was a skier begin in rugby? Well, it was through skiing, actually. There was a girl named Sandy Strang, and she played rugby for the Rockers. And Sandy had said to me one day, what do you do during the summer to stay in shape for rugby, uh, for skiing? I said, well, run, cycle. She goes, no, no, come out and start playing rugby. And she played for the Rockers. So Sandy brought me, but I fell in love with rugby. It was one of those things, as you know, you fell in love with it too. So that's how I got started. Sandy didn't come back the next year in 83, but I stayed probably until I stopped playing in 93, 94. I when I went into administration. So what was it that triggered you to go from playing to administration? As you know, Helen, we all, <laughs> as, you know. as you know, many, and this, and this is not um, specific just to me, in our time, you played you were an administrator, you were your club captain, you were running the club, or you were on a rugby union. Um, I actually think it was your fault. <laughs> we, at one point in Alberta, had an Alberta women's rugby union. And it was either that's yourself funny. or June yeah, who right. coerced me to come and sit on that. And I enjoyed that because through administration, not just being on the field, we started to gain more control of our game. And that really appealed to me. And then again... To get on to the national, 
you already know that story. It was yourself and another lady who approached me to say, there's an opening on the board for Rugby Canada. We think you should go there. Yeah. So just to take you back, <laughs> folks, to, to some of that, we'll fill in some of the blanks. So in 1987, um, Quebec made themselves available to come to a competition of provincial teams. So we had had some Western teams, but we had never had anybody from the East. So when Quebec said that they were going to be able to come to Edmonton, then it was game on. Right. And so I worked with Ellerslie Rugby Park and the Alberta Rugby Union and all the people around that we because, of course, we had to put this all on for no money. Like that was always the promise. You had to barter. Okay, it's not going to cost you anything. It'll be good for publicity. You know, it'll be good for growing the game. Okay, okay, go ahead. Do what you want. So we set up a national championship at Ellerslie. And from that competition, then we would pick a team. And so we had already established the Alberta, like Jill said, we had already established Alberta Women's Rugby Union. So we were kind of on our own. We weren't threatening anybody. And we were just, you know, sort of running out of uh, kitchens and, and living rooms. And and like I say, everybody was three things, right? You were either the, the washer of jerseys or you were the coach or you were the player and the administrator. You had to go to the meetings. You had to get us bingos, all that stuff, right? Um, so in 87, we had uh, the national championships in Edmonton. And then from that competition, we pulled out a national team, correct? Correct. That's how it happened. Yeah. And then we had a game scheduled against the Americans, which was actually, I think, and I could be wrong, but I think that might have been the very first sort of official international Canada versus USA game. Correct. Uh, maybe even in the world, that might have been the first international. I don't think so. I think in Brit in U.S. or sorry, Britain. <clears throat> Britain was playing already playing France and yeah, yeah, they were already playing. So anyway, that was our first foray into that. And then when we went to the AGM at that, which was held at the same time as this international game, because they had this game in Victoria and they had a men's game scheduled. And oh my God, they even let us play a women's game at that time too. There was an AGM and we had our male friends in place. Good old Gareth Jones, right? Came to the AGM from the Alberta Rugby Union and proposed that the Canadian Rugby Union should have a women's program and a director, I think a director, right? A director. On the board, yeah. somebody on the board. And so we knew that Gareth was going to do it. We had it all plotted. We had a seconder to the motion and, uh, we had all this organized and we had our candidate. And at the time, the candidate was Liz Ferguson, actually. And she was going to be the person that we were going to pop into that board position. And she was going to then be in charge of the women's program. And of course, we, like we already, you have to understand, without actually being official, we already had our skirts and blouses and, and scarves ready as a team. We were ready to roll 
That's so funny, actually, when I think about that, you know, because we had no credibility to be able to do that. There was no program at that time. But after that AGM, boom, we're in, we're a program, we're off and running. Liz Ferguson was the first uh, woman on that board. And I think Joe Reinbold ended up being the second person. And then Jill was the third person. And the reason I'm interviewing Jill is because she was actually the conduit to take us the next level then into the international scene. So um, in in the book that I wrote, there is actually a pretty good story of the guy called Fred Paoli. Do you remember Fred Paoli? In history, he'll go down in history, yes. Yes. He was actually, as, as, horrible as, it, as horrible as the experience was, he was that board that sprung us up. It got us the attention we needed. Absolutely. Fred Paoli stood up. So the usually at the end of a, an international game, there's a banquet, right? And, uh, you know, the captains of the teams stand up and they say nice things about the other team and thank everybody. And, it, and it's ever so proper and it's ever so polite and it's a tradition of the game, right? And uh, Fred Paoli, captain of the USA team, stood up and said, I do not understand why all these women are in the room and my wife can't come in here, especially since I believe that women playing rugby is the bastardization of this game. Well, the girls were (laughs) incensed. You're talking about women who had jumped over fences to get onto playing fields, right? So they were, and the American girls were appalled that somebody would say that. So, we all stood up and we walked out and what, a, that was sort of the first, you know, black arm in the air kind of statement. But what was so funny is we had no idea what the men would do because the, the guy players are just sitting there going, what is going on? And then all of a sudden they said, well, you have to remember dinner was over, <laughs> right? So the guys are going, well, if the girls are going we're going. And so they stood up, the Canadian men's team stood up and they left as well. So Fred Paoli's speech was over. And so from that moment on, we were in the game, so to speak. Yeah. So the repercussions from that was, is the board, of course, was at that meeting at dinner. So they came out of that saying, okay, we can't ever have this happen again. And not only that, but that Fred Paoli's speech, as we all refer to it, resounded now overseas into Britain. So this is 87. So this is the end of 87. As we're going into 1988, we're starting to hear from our British friends because they're playing in Europe, four or five different countries have got teams, and they want to have a World Cup. That's And that speech was, this is why we have to do it. We have to now. We're good in our countries. Like you said, you know, we've been submersive. We've been getting in there. Now it's time for us to go international. But that speech is what was the impetus for the British women to start to reach out to say, if we host, who will come? That is so cool, Jill. Like I never, so when you're working from the bottom up where I was, you're never quite sure, you know, you don't get all the stories from the top down. So talk us through a little bit sort of what happened then from that point on and and give us the history because I don't think actually that the history has ever been, 
you know, sort of described in this kind of manner. And I don't think anybody knew that there was this whole cabal of women working bottom up and top down. And when I say that, you know, Carol Isherwood in England was sort of my technical position equal in in Canada, right? Like we were on the ground making sure we had coaches and the technical part was looked after. But there was a whole top down part and you were a real uh, part of that cabal. So talk us a little bit through what happened next then. So without getting into the greedy details, you and Liz, because by this time, Liz has stepped down into a staff position. We have another oh, VP, right. right? I have just stopped playing rugby and I'm now coaching and doing administrative work. So I'm talking now we're into 8990. And this is when Britain starts to make contact. But at that time, you and Liz had approached me to say, there's going to be a gap. Would you like to be the VP of the Women's National Program for Rugby Canada? So I'm thinking, this is great because I've got this woman who's contacting me. If I'm in that position, yes, we want to be at the table. Yes, we will we'll come. Somehow we'll come. So I joined the board in 1993. Prior to that, in 1990, we agreed. We'd only, we'd only had our second national game because 87 was the first one. 88, we didn't have one. 90, we did. So I'm saying, yeah, we have a national team. We can come looking around to say, how the hell are we going to get there? Because we've got, right, just like you yeah. said, you sure you can go, the board said, we don't have any money. So we work bingos. And that money that normally would go into the club coffers, we all agreed we'd put towards who our players were to pay their way. And we're talking, about, you know, five to $10,000, you've got airfare, hair hotel, and you're there for two weeks. So that goes on. It's successful. So now we have the international... Um, people taking a look at us. And what I mean by that is the IRB. They're taking a look at us. So when 1991 goes off and it's very successful, 16 countries show up, we have a fantastic competition, England wins it, that's okay. We're on the international scene. That's when you approach me and say, we need somebody else to sit on the board. And I joined the board in 1993. 1994 is our first World Cup that the IRB now wants to come and visit. I don't know if people realize this, but rugby around the world, it's now called World Rugby, is managed and uh, developed by World Rugby. The women weren't in that camp yet. They hadn't recognized us yet. We had, our home unions had, but they hadn't. Very interested when they said, um, and another thing that people don't realize, World Cups are every four years. So the men had theirs in 1993, we have ours in Scotland in 1994. Kudos to the Scottish Rugby Union for saying they'd host it, which meant for us, we were getting referees. We were getting good playing fields, not, you know, the dirt track out in the back that they practice on. So when the IRB showed up at that meeting and we had a conference, we wanted to vote in our own board, we were going to be our own international women's rugby, they showed up because they were interested to see what we were doing. I also think a little bit, they were a little bit concerned because, you know, when women are organized and get together, watch out. That's right. They'll take over the world, don't you know? <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. And, and well, we didn't, but we took over women's rugby. So long story short, 
they approached us and said, instead of being your own union, and they've got the money, they've got the resources, the referees, the coaching, coaching programs are already in place. Let's not reinvent the wheel on something that works. They invited us to be part of the IRB at that time, the Women's Advisory Committee. And we wanted to know what the terms were. We kind of negotiated our terms and we, we made it happen. And that meant now we have access to funds. We have access to resources we just didn't have and, and don't need to reinvent. You talked about Carol Isherwood. Carol was very instrumental in organizing the Europeans um, to make sure when the Americans and the Canadians showed up, it was going to be cohesive, that we we're all on the same path. And because she was staff, she couldn't run for position on the advisory board, but she... I think she would have loved to have been on that board, but she was so happy for us to be there, which doesn't always happen, as you know, in rugby and with women. Women aren't always very supportive with each other. Yeah, that it, that's an interesting point um, because somebody asked me uh, in an interview, uh, what was one of the most disappointing things that I had experienced throughout the rugby? And I remember sort of saying to them how deflating and disheartening it is because here you are, you're working to get women's rugby forward and going forward and, and, you know, you're, you're giving up families in order to do that. And the person you find out who has voted against your proposal at a board is a woman. And you kind of go, what? How is that even possible? Oh yeah. You know, and, and it's usually the guys who love to tell you that, that, you know what, you know, you think it's us that is so bad. Yeah. Well, guess who voted against you? And you, it's, it always just breaks your heart because you think, oh my gosh. Right. And, and like, that's just like for me anyway, you know, when women apply for coaching positions and you find out that it's other women who have voted against them and you kind of go, what are you doing? You know, like, yeah, they don't have the same experience as the guys, but man, Dave Hitchcock didn't play to a high level, pretty good NHL coach, just saying, right? And so, you you know, they're denying opportunities to other women. And I, I've never quite got that. Do you have any kind of story or, or what would have been your most, um, not sad, but it, it, you feel betrayed. What would have been a moment for you where you felt that? Uh, the greatest? I would say that, um, so I, st I stayed at the IRB level for 10 years before life work sort of gets in the way of the things you love to do. So when I stepped away from that, I think the hardest thing was, was not to people I knew, people I'd played with, I'd coached with, I had done administrative roles with you, turned their back on me to say she did nothing. She doesn't deserve to be recognized or um, be into the Hall of Fame at Rugby Canada. That hurt. My male counterparts on the other side looked at my body of work and said, yeah, she needs to deserve, deserves to be there. You have to recognize, Helen, no other woman from Canada has ever been on the RB level. Yeah. Or, or when we had Norwira, you know, it, it, that's what hurts is that I don't, I'm not looking for accolades. I'm not looking for the pat in the back every single time I see somebody, but don't denigrate what I've done and pull it down because then that sets us all back. Who wants to go into a position like that only to know, huh, I wonder if I'm going to get treated the same way. 
Yeah. So tell me about uh, your American and English counterparts. So who were these girls, and do did did they do they feel the same way you do about you know how their careers have sort of moved yes. away? So in 1994 in Scotland, Jamie Jordan from the U.S. and Rosabie Goby and myself. There was a um, Fanchon from France and Yvonne from Netherlands. We were the first advisory committee. I've kept in touch a lot with Rosie and Jamie. And as time has gone on and awards are given out to people, it seems to stop and nothing prior to, say, 1995, nobody recognizes us, nobody remembers us. And so we're, it, it, it hurts, you know, you worked hard and, and, and I'm, people think back to the 1990s, there was no such thing as the Me Too movement. We put up with a lot. There was a lot of misogyny going on in those days, but those two are shining examples for me. We support each other. We're there for each other. We pat each other on the back because we know what we had to put up with to go there. And, you know, I want to leave this on a positive note. I just hope more women, doesn't matter folks, if it's you that had the idea or that you that executed, just be part of it. Be supportive because I could only take it so far. And the next group came in and they've taken it the next level to the point where, you know, we have, um, the RFU, the famous English RFU, their president is Jill Burns. Cool. That is so cool. So, um, I don't think people realize either that in the days that we were getting the game on the field, um, there was this cabal of women sort of stretched a across the, cabal. it was small, but at the same time, you could not be, you know, putting yourself out there. So, you know, like you were trying to get this done on the lowdown. Because the last thing that we wanted to do was be threatening to anybody because that would ruin all of our access, right? So it isn't like we could turn around and say, good job, Jill, for getting that World Cup down and good job for getting a woman's, you know, position on the international IRB committee. Good job, Rosie. Good job, Jamie. Like there, you couldn't do that so vocally because all of a sudden people would go, what? There are women out there. There are women on, why are there women in there? There should be like an under 18 boys guy. There shouldn't, why are we doing anything with women? That's not right. So you had to be kind of quiet. You had to, like, I listen to people now talk about, you know, we need to have more seats at the table. When I came in, when you came in, we were just trying to get our game to the table. It wasn't even about having a seat. We would use any guy who would, uh, you know, be an advocate for us and we would feed them from the behind them, right? And we would give them paper and data and documents and organization and budgets and everything. And they would put it out. And it was only, you know, in 87, when we finally said, now we need a female body, we actually need a female at the table. And so there was no opportunity to sort of you know, pat anybody on the back because A, everybody was working so hard and B, nobody was in it for that reason. And C, that was not what we wanted to draw attention to. We wanted to draw attention to the little girls playing rugby and the players, right? And so uh, that took the forefront at that time. So now having said all this, what would have been the most rewarding? Like what, what was a moment that you can remember where you go, okay, it has all been worth it. Um, so 
94 is when we all came together. 1998, we're in Amsterdam. Um, IRB has come to it. We have some of the best referees in the world. And folks, as you know, no referee, no game. That made a huge difference in the level of play from 94 to 98. Then the last World Cup when I was still on the board was 2002. And for me, that was the icing on the cake. We had 16, 12 teams. We're back to 16 now. We had 12 teams. The level of play was outstanding. So Canada went from being somewhere around eight, ninth. We hit number four in 98 and we were, we retained our fourth position in Spain, but we were so close. So, so close. But when you have a referee who's uh, Ed Morrison, he was the guy who was referee at the men's level, come in, walk off that field. I was game commission that game, have him come off and say, that's some of the best rugby I've ever refereed. That was it for yeah. me. Yeah. Yes. Um, like from my end of coaching, uh, the reward has always come from the players. And uh, it's always been, you know, a, a little girl, pin high, pin wide. Her mom doesn't even know she's playing. And uh, she looks at me from the field and she's got this great big beaming smile of, I did it, I did it. That has always been my reward, but you're absolutely right. You know, when you walk away, when we had the, I think it was it the Canada cup that was in at the yes. stadium in Edmonton and, uh, it was hello dog. Yeah. <laughs> she wants in on the, on the conversation, but we had people in the stands. It was official. It was, you know, it was big time and we had players and the product on the field was wonderful. And I too walked away from that event and said, all right, tick, what's next, right? You know, that's very true. So if you look at it from um, the eyes of the IRB, commerciality is really key. Uh, 1998, they broke even. 2002 in Spain, there was a profit. And for, you know, putting it in perspective, that was legitimate. Yeah. Under 18 yeah. age boys, right? They were making profits at their World Cup. Now the women do too. And by the way, folks, in 1998, the women stopped paying to play at a World Cup. And on that note... I think that I'm going to wrap it up so that you've had a little history lesson. And uh, I'm just so pleased. Thank you, Jill. Thank you so much for uh, going down memory lane with me and, and uh, helping me record that history. I think it's really important that we do record this stuff because a lot of people go, you know, who the hell were they and what did they do? And I, like I said, I did this interview and they, this woman said, who didn't know anything about rugby, she said, are you telling me that there was this cabal of women that made this all happen? I said, yes. And she goes, how come nobody knows about that? And I thought to myself, all right, podcast number six coming up. <laughs> That's what we're going to do. We're going to tell the story. So thank you very much. Thanks, Helen. It was, this is great. Yeah. And so I'm going to sign off folks and uh, I will talk to you next week about something probably much more technical and maybe I'll even rant a little, who knows, but thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Jill, for giving us a history lesson and I will talk to you soon, everyone. Well, that's a wrap for this session and I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please feel free to tick the like box because that lets me know if anyone out there is listening. 
You can also find these podcasts on my website, barefootflying.ca. That's B-A-R-E-F-O-O-T-F-L-Y-I-N-G dot C-A. If you want to add your opinion to the discussion, feel free to email me at HelenWrightRugby at gmail.com. That's HelenWrightRugby at gmail.com. Talk to you soon. Be well.